right, hi everyone, and welcome back to the Resident Review. Uh, my name is Nick Olick. I'm a PGY2 at Duke Plastic Surgery. I'm joined today by two of my co-residents, Hannah Langdell and Whitney Lane. Uh, we're continuing our new series today called the Resident Review Flapcast, and this is where we do a deep dive into common flaps using plastic surgery. Uh, each of these episodes, we have an in-depth discussion about a specific flap with an expert in the field. And today we are very excited to be joined by Dr. Jason Coe from Northwestern. Dr. Coe completed his plastic surgery residency at Northwestern, followed by a fellowship in hand surgery at the University of Washington, and is now an associate professor of plastic and orthopedic surgery at Northwestern University. He is also the program director of the Northwestern Integrated Plastic Surgery Residency Program. Dr. Coe, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So today we'll be discussing the medial femoral condyle flap. This is an increasingly popular flap for small defects that require vascularized bone for reconstruction. It is used predominantly for bony reconstruction of the hand and wrist, but has also been described for a variety of unique bony defects and non-unions of the upper and lower extremities. It is a reliable flap with relatively consistent arterial uh, anatomy and pedicle length and minimal donor site morbidity. Nick, can you start by taking us through some of the basic anatomy for this flap? Um, most commonly, this flap is based off the descending genicular artery. So this artery originates from the superficial femoral artery. It runs just deep or lateral to the adductor magnus tendon. It has three terminal branches, an articular branch, which supplies the periosteum and cartilage, a muscular branch, uh, typically supplying the vastus medialis, and then a saphenous branch, which supplies the overlying skin and subcutaneous tissue. Now, alternatively, uh, this flap may be based off the supermedial genicular artery. Uh, in some cases, this actually may be the dominant pedicle to the MFC flap. Uh, I think we'll get into this uh, a little bit more during our discussion. Uh, but this artery originates from the popliteal, crosses deep the adductor magnus tendon, and then anastomosis with the articular branches of the descending genicular. In terms of venous drainage, uh, it's typically from the paired vena comitans from either the descending genicular or the uh, supermedial genicular, depending on which your flap is based off of. That's perfect. Thanks, Nick. So now we'll bring back in Dr. Ko. So can you start by discussing some of your indications for the MFC flap and uh, what kind of patients are you looking for, uh, I guess, besides some of the scaphoid non-union, which we hear about a lot, what other indications do you think about for this flap? Um, so Hannah, you're right. Probably the, the indication that really caused the MFC flap to explode in terms of its popularity was scaphoid non-union with proximal pole ABN. And so it's definitely the first indication that I use the MFC flap for. Uh, and that also kind of spurred the MFT flap or medial femoral trochlear flap, which we'll also discuss during this podcast. Um, for me, you know, my practice is primarily extremity based. So I do a lot of hand and uh, wrist reconstruction in addition to upper and lower extremity reconstruction. So I personally, I use it for scaphoid non-unions, for Keenbox disease, uh, so AVN of the lunate with little to no collapse, uh, where an MFT may be an option, uh, including cartilage. Um, I also have a pretty busy practice with one of the orthopedic foot and ankle surgeons uh, here at Northwestern. So we get a decent number of patients who come in with avascular necrosis of the talus and the ankle or the navicular. 
Uh, I've done AVN, a component of AVN in the tibia, anterior tibia at the ankle and broaden MFC into there. And then one of the things that um, Dr. Kadakia, the orthopedic foot and ankle surgeon I work with, he does tibiotalar calcaneal fusion. So TTC fusion of the ankle. So an ankle fusion using a big block of femoral head allograft. So he brings in this big chunk of dead bone. Many of those patients, they've had you know, over 10 surgeries in the past. Uh, and so they have deficient and scarred soft tissue. And we'll get into this too. And so the original reason I was consulted for these cases was, hey, I need a soft tissue flap on top of this big allograft ankle fusion construct. And so something that we've started doing and we will hopefully publish very soon uh, is I said, well, why don't I bring some vascularized bone with the soft tissue? And so I started using MFC with skin paddle to essentially augment this big block of dead bone, this allograft bone to help kind of speed up the uh, bone healing. So I use it in the hand and upper extremities, uh, lower extremities also. Um, and then in the literature, you're going to see a lot has been written more recently for head and neck and facial trauma. So mandible, maxilla reconstruction. Um, and then the versatility of the flap, you know, initially it was described by Sakai and Doi in 1991 uh, as a corticoperiosteal flap. So you can take this as a thin vascularized flap that can then wrap around non-union sites. So one of the common indications is a clavicle non-union where you can plate it and then wrap the whole thing with periosteum alone or this corticoperiosteal flap. Um, and so when you think about that, you can use that all over the body. Uh, and then, you know, going back to the question in my own practice, I've done a couple cases of really big giant cell tumors of the distal radius where you need 15 centimeters of bone. And in the literature to reconstruct the radius, uh, people have used vascularized fibula, which makes sense. But I had two cases um, where they had perineal artery magna. So meaning basically the perineal artery is the main blood supply to the foot in both legs. And so fibula was not an option. Uh, and so in those cases, we didn't really have too many choices. We used a big piece of distal radius allograft to complete our fusion. And then I actually wrapped the whole thing with uh, vascularized MFC periosteum to try to, again, rather than just hope that this big piece of dead bone is going to incorporate by bringing in periosteum, at least will hopefully kind of bring life to some of it. So um, that's the, that's thinking. Um, but yeah, basically, you know, very simply when I think about vascularized bone, um, I like the MFC because, you know, for scaphoids and lunates, you can imagine you can bring this in for a very small piece of bone. Uh, it's not just this six centimeter length thing that people talk about the dogma. So MFCs are great for small defects. If you need cartilage, you can bring the MFT and it has a very nice, like truly chimeric skin paddle, meaning the skin is totally separate from the bone. So you can actually move them into different pieces, unlike a fibula where the skin paddle is stuck to the bone pretty much. Um, I like saying that MFCs are good for 
quote unquote weird shape defects. So if it's not just a, you know, a long bone reconstruction, if it's a length issue, then I'm thinking fibula in my mind. If it's weird shape, rectangular, or you need something to wrap around something, um, or like more of a square block of bone, then I'm thinking MFC. So it's better for weird shape defects all over the body. Uh, and I think that you can go very small to pretty big. I've done big ones before, but then you, you do start to worry about the risk of femur fracture. Yeah, about how and much bone big. can you take without uh, worrying about like a, a pathologic fracture? So that is a good question. Um, you know, Higgins and Matt Iorio did a study looking at the, the perfusion. So you can take up to, I think, 13 to 14 centimeter length segment of bone with MFC. Um, I, knock on wood, have not had any femur fractures, even though I've taken some big ones. Um, the general rule of thumb, so Heinsberger, who, along with Jim Higgins, really I think push the envelope with MFCs and MFTs. If you look at the papers around scaphoids and Keenbox and other indications, they've been the most prolific uh, outside of the Mayo group. Mm -hmm. Heinsberger says that, you know, he's had at least one bad fracture and it was when he took a long one. And so we'll talk a little bit more about the anatomy, but you know, the MFC is based on the longitudinal branch of the descending geniculate vessels. And then the transverse branch, which comes off more proximally, that's what takes you to the cartilage for the MFT. So he, you know, I don't think any good studies have been done, but his mantra is you should never take bone proximal to that transverse branch because those are the cases where he's had trouble in the past. Uh, and then Jim Higgins and his brother, who's a trauma, orthopedic trauma surgeon, they did, I believe it was a sawbone type of study looking at what are the types of loads that would cause a femur fracture after an MFC harvest? And it's not axial loading, it's more of a torsional or twisting load. Um, so my recommendation would be, you know, according to Heinsberger, don't harvest anything proximal to the transverse branch, even though I have. Uh, if you do though, then you probably want to get them in a hinge knee brace or something that's going to allow motion, but will prevent the twisting that could cause the crack in the femur. So Perfect. that's, that's a pretty, that's a devastating complication if you yeah. have it. I know that you've started to mention a little bit about how you do your dissection in some of these comments uh, in terms of how far you dissect up. Um, I've now seen a couple MFC flaps and seen the dissection, how difficult it actually can be, especially when you're including a skin paddle. So if you go into a little bit about your tips, tricks, any pearls that you've picked up um, doing these flaps over the years in terms of how to uh, set yourself up for success in terms of dissection, that would be awesome. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, and so I think one question that any surgeon who's going to do an MFC or MFT flap needs to figure out ahead of time is, am I going to bring a skin paddle or not? So if you're not going to bring a skin paddle, you can just do a straight longitudinal incision right over the medial femur. I try to center it more towards where Hunter's Canal is uh, or the adductor hiatus. So um, some authors write along the posterior border of the vastus medialis, but essentially where you think Hunter's Canal is and you're gonna access the superficial femoral vessels, straight incision that way. 
if I'm going to bring a skin paddle um, and it's going to be relatively small, either way, uh, I then, let me take it a step back. I harvest these supine with a tourniquet in the frog leg position. Uh, if I need to, I put a bump under the opposite hip to really get good access to that medial knee. Um, no matter what you're doing, it's tough on either your neck or on your lower back if you're depending on which side of the uh, OR table you're doing your dissection. Uh, so I always do try to do it under tourniquet control. I don't exsanguinate completely, just gravity exsanguinate. If I'm gonna take a skin paddle, I try to do an elliptical incision. Um, Jim Higgins in his articles has done a good job describing that, but essentially marking out the patella, tibial plateau, and then essentially creating this curvilinear incision that ends up proximally over you know, the area of the uh, Hunter's Canal. And so I start with that incision. And then it's, you know, I tell my residents this dissection to get down to the descending geniculate vessels and the periosteum where you see all the vessels should technically only take like five minutes. It should take you five minutes and you should be looking at the MFC bone that you're gonna be taking. Um, but five to 20 minutes, hopefully people are careful but essentially make the incision with the bovi, go all the way through that vastus medialis fascia. And then I try to then lift the vastus medialis off of the bone, if that makes sense. Uh, and then trying to leave space on top of the bone. And then there's always this extra layer of tissue between the periosteal vessels and where you are. So you need to lift that fibro fatty type of layer um, and actually one thing that I try to do if I'm doing an MFC flap, after I take out my MFC, I usually try to pack in allograft bone into that defect. And so at that point, I try to elevate actually a little three-sided flap of that fibro fatty stuff so that when I get down and we take our MFC out, I can then pack the defect with allograft and then suture down that little fiber fatty just to contain the allograft. And I do that because uh, Jim Higgins, I don't know if he's published it, but he's presented on patients who have had MFCs who then later get a CT of the knee for whatever reason. And he's shown images where that MFC defect doesn't fill in over time. You know, it's always there. So that's one of the reasons why I do pack in allograft bone to get that to fill in. Um, so then again, as you're looking at the longitudinal and transverse branches on the medial column of the femur, I try to get a sense of, you know, where is the descending geniculate vessels? Uh, in anywhere from 70 to 90% of patients, you're gonna have a nice descending geniculate artery coming off the SFA. If you do, you're gonna get a nice caliber vessel with length, you know, upwards of eight to 10 plus centimeters. Um, but sometimes you're going to run into a situation where that's not there and the superior medial geniculate vessels are there. And that unfortunately is a much shorter pedicle with a different course. Uh, and so that's probably less than five centimeters. And instead of going longitudinally, it's actually shooting downwards towards the popliteal vessels. Um, and so sometimes you're going to have to, you may have to change your game plan a little bit just because the difference in pedicle length uh, is actually pretty substantial. Um, and then 
at that point, before I do any bone harvesting, if I'm taking a skin paddle, I'm then trying to identify the perforator. So in that, if I'm looking at the medial knee in the inferior border kind of of our dissection, I'll be looking for a perforator that's coming out kind of right off where that transverse branch comes off the descending genicular vessels. There should be a vessel coming off downwards or towards you. Uh, and then if you need to, you can drop the tourniquet at that point, use a Doppler, figure out what you need to do to identify that single perforator. Um, typically with skin paddles, I'm taking a fairly small skin paddle in that sense. If you need a bigger skin paddle, again, Matt Iorio and Jim Higgins did a good study showing the difference in perfusion zones. But if you need a much bigger skin paddle, you can use the saphenous artery uh, if that perforator is there, which it should be, to take a much bigger skin paddle. And so biggest skin paddle I've ever taken, which again, I'm still surprised it was that big, was around nine by 21 centimeters, which I oh, used wow. for a calcaneal reconstruction. So that was with the, the true MFC skin perforator plus a saphenous artery perforator. Um, and again, I love the fact that it's truly chimeric. The skin paddle can kind of move um, separate from the bone, which is different than the fibula. So it gives you a little more freedom. Um, any, sorry, I'm kind of just rambling, but uh, no, you're doing other, great. Oh, that's great. Um, and then again, if I'm taking the, if I'm just taking bone, with no cartilage, then I'm going to center my flap based on the longitudinal branch of the descending geniculate vessels. Uh, if I want cartilage, then I'm going to go up to the transverse branch. Uh, and in that case, to get good visualization of the cartilage up there without, you know, being restricted, I then completely extend the knee. Because if you think about extending the knee, it takes tension off the patella, and then you can use a deeper retractor or something to just get the patella completely out of the way. And then you're looking right at the cartilage. In terms of bigger picture things, um, I think, you know, one of the questions is when do you bring in a skin paddle? When do you not? Uh, just like any flap, you know, you have to think about tension and how are you going to cover your vascular anastomosis? So something that Greg Dumanian, my chief, who was program director when I was training was always like, how are you going to cover your anastomosis? Anytime you're doing a lower extremity free flap, how are you going to cover your anastomosis? And so with that in mind, that's kind of how I decide, you know, whether I need a skin paddle or not, because if I'm doing a scaphoid reconstruction um, or keen box reconstruction through the dorsal wrist, the dorsal wrist skin is loose enough that I can do all that and then still close primarily at the end without undue tension. Um, plus, I think because I'm going end the side into the dorsal branch of the radial vessels, it's just not tension right on the anastomosis directly usually. Um, but if you're in a situation in the lower extremity, especially, um, many of those patients that are coming to you that need some fancy flap in the leg, they've already had like five to 15 surgeries. So it's all scarred. When you think about the ankle from a cylindrical circumference standpoint, after we do all this stuff, you're going to get edema, swelling, uh, so whenever I'm doing stuff in the ankle, uh, I'm always going to bring a skin paddle with it because 
I want to be able to place my bone and then detension the whole thing with this skin paddle rather than trying to close primarily over everything. I had a quick question about um, specifically for the scaphoid. Once you have uh, some sort of template to show you what size you need, are you trying to, with your osteotomies, make it the exact same size as the template? Or are you doing any, like taking any extra and doing fine tuning once you're up in the wrist? Or what's your, I guess, process for getting the correct size that you need? That's a great question. So, um, so for the scaphoid, I'll usually resect the proximal pole of the scaphoid to help the bone and then use methyl methacrylate or some other cement to then make the template. Uh, I will tell you the first time, if you read, you know, Jim Higgins and Heinsberger's papers on the MFT for scaphoid proximal pole, it's not completely clear. I uh, hope they don't mind that I'm saying this, but it's not completely clear in the figures and their description, how you're supposed to orient things. It's actually, it's a little wild. And so I remember the first time I did an MFT for proximal pole scaphoid. Again, I had never done one, but I'd done MFCs before. How, how you know, complex could this be? Um, literally trying to figure out where the vascular pedicle is supposed to come off relative to the cartilage, relative to the scaphoid. It took me like, probably at least an hour and a half, two hours, just going between the knee and the wrist, trying mm -hmm. to figure out how the hell I'm gonna get this to work. And so one thing I do now that I've, you know, now I think I know how to do it, how to do it. Uh, I use a methyl methacrylate uh, to mold what the proximal pole needs to be size-wise and shape-wise. And then before it completely hardens if possible, I'll then try to drive a K-wire into the methyl methacrylate because that's going to tell me this is where the vascular pedicle is coming. Hmm. And so then I take that whole thing, cement plus K-wire, and then I can put it right where I need to. I mark it out on the knee. And then to your, to your question, Hannah, I will you know, either take it the same size or I'll take it slightly bigger. But when you think about the scaphoid, it's, you know, you don't want to take too much or else you'll be whittling away for another hour trying to make it perfect. So if I feel good about my template and I feel good about how I'm going to make my osteotomies um, and whether I'm doing it versus a resident, nothing against residents, but. Um, oh, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, to, to answer your question, it is safer to take a little more and then sure. whittle it away and fashion it down so that it's perfect. I will say if you end up taking a smaller one, it's probably not the end of the world because then you can still just take some cancellous bone from the knee, pack it, make up the difference, and then still put your screw across. Because the key is that the cartilage is there and that it's vascularized. Dr. Crow, can you talk a little bit more about your fixation at the wrist if you are using this for a scaphoid, um, K-wires versus screws and, and how this might differ whether you're doing an MFC versus MFT? Yeah. Um, and so I will say nowadays, I'm much quicker to just go right to the MFT than I am trying to do the MFC simply because, you know, I really like the MFT and I think it's a great reconstruction. Uh, and so far, haven't been any issues in the literature or in my own patient population with knee 
pain long-term. Uh, and then Brian Carlson out of Mayo Clinic did a good study looking at knee morbidity after MFC flaps, just showing overall it's a pretty safe flap in general. Um, for the scaphoid, uh, MFT. So let's start with MFT. If I'm taking out the whole proximal pole, it, first off, I do it through a dorsal approach. Um, some of the European surgeons like Heinsberger, they prefer the volar approach. Uh, but for me, access to the proximal pole makes more sense to go dorsally. And then I'm going right into the dorsal branches of the radial artery and the vena comitante is there. So putting in the MFT, it's a straight shot, just like any scaphoid fracture. Uh, I use, you know, I have no disclosures. I use a mini Accutrax screw um, in an antegrade fashion. So meaning proximal to distal right through my MFT flap. Some people say, why would you do that? You know, why would you drill a big hole through your brand new MFT? But it's, it's just like we treat a scaphoid fracture, you know, in general, we drive a big hole through that proximal pole to put a screw in. Um, the European microsurgery meeting was virtual just a couple weeks ago. And some of the European surgeons say they're using micro Accutrax screws, which are smaller. Again, a testament to just the vascularity of the MFT. They're saying as long as you get reasonable fixation, it heals quickly enough that you don't need a bigger screw. Um, you'll see a lot of the international surgeons are using K-wires. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is just, you know, AK wires are tried and true. The, the downside is you have to take them out uh, either in a procedure room in a secondary fashion or you have to take them back to the OR potentially. Um, but I think in some of the other countries, you know, the costs of screws and headless compression screw systems may be prohibitive. So that's why in some of the MFC and MFT series that you see from other countries, they're a lot of K-wires as opposed to screws. Um, at least that's what those surgeons have told me, that screws are expensive or they're not always available at the hospital that they're at. In terms of MFC, same thing. I use a uh, headless compression screw. MFCs, just like the MFT, you can do through a volar approach or a dorsal approach. Again, I prefer dorsal. Going back to my earlier point about preferring the MFT, that's simply like, you know, if you think of having a distal pole and a proximal pole, the scaphoid that you're leaving, and then you're coring out the middle and then putting in a new block of MFC with a blood vessel coming off of it, I just think it's a little more futzy to then try to get these three separate pieces of bone to line up while maneuvering this vascular pedicle, um, as opposed to the MFT, which is two pieces of bone, you line them up, get your guide wire in, and then go. So that's my own personal preference, uh, even though the MFC works very well. Um, but same thing, mini Accutrax screw, just to get good headless compression and then get them moving as soon as possible. Do you use like a two-team approach or do you do the whole, like, yeah. I use a two-team approach in that I am often in the wrist while my wonderful resident is dissecting out the MFC. Because okay. um, we, so at Northwestern, we don't have fellows uh, and I haven't needed a second attending surgeon, even though it probably would make my life easier and much quicker. Um, but I will say too, COVID kind of 
hurt volumes and stuff, but there was, you know, there was a time right before COVID we were doing NFCs or NFTs very regularly. And so the residents were quite good at just dissecting down, like I mentioned before, five minutes to 20 minutes, they can get down to everything we need to do. We make decisions together and then they keep going while I keep working in the wrist. And then they'll come to the wrist and join me and then I'll come to the knee. Um, so it's a, it's like a 1.5 team, not that residents are. <laughs> yeah, we have like a 2.5 team. So we need to uh, talk to our attendings too, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're uh, oftentimes, you know, when you're doing them for skateboards or keen box or in general, you know, they can be high stakes flaps, especially if these patients are coming from far away. You just really want this, like patients already had a couple of surgeries for their scaphoid. This really needs to work. Uh, I can understand the two team approach. It'll make it much, much quicker. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Nick will attest, he, he rotated with us. I mean, our residents get a lot of autonomy and uh, that's my own preference as a program director, I think. I will, you know, yes, I could get a second surgeon to help me out, but I think it's a better learning experience for the resident to, to get started on the flap and start harvesting and then kind of go from there. Speaking about the fact that these are high stakes flaps, do you monitor these flaps post-operatively in any way? Um, especially if you don't have a skin paddle, do you use things like cook dopplers for your uh, muscle or for your bony implants? Because um, I've seen them monitored, I've seen them not monitored, and we send the patients home the next day. That's a great question. I, when I first started, I mean, these are true free flaps, right? These are vascularized bone flaps. There are studies out there, uh, not for MFC, but for fibulas showing with bone scanning that uh, by five days, you know, you could cut the vascular pedicle and the bone is still alive in theory, according to both bone scan uh, testing. With that said, early in my practice, I would monitor them all. Uh, and then nowadays, when I don't have a skin paddle, and if it's for a scaphoid or a lunate, and I'm plugging right here into the dorsal branches of the radial vessels, I do not monitor them at all. Uh, I, I do admit them overnight. I used to keep them two to three days. Now I keep them one night. I make just a volar thumb spike type splint with a window here. Because uh, when you think about it, that vascular pedicle is wrapping along the dorsal of the wrist to go to the snuff box. So you can just use a little pencil Doppler and hear it at the bedside after surgery, post-op day one. And assuming they aren't total knuckleheads and they're reliable, I let them go. And then similarly, I do put them in a cast with a window um, not so much a window, just uh, that, like a donut. So there's no pressure over the vascular pedicle, but I listen to them when we see them two weeks after surgery. So in the wrist, I don't monitor them. Everywhere else in the body, I monitor them because uh, everywhere else for the most part, I'm bringing a skin paddle. Um, there are a few cases in the forearm and stuff where I did not need a skin paddle just because there's enough soft tissue. I have monitored with uh, venous Doppler's for those. So basically I monitor them almost 100% of the time, except in the wrist. Um, 
And I don't have a good reason for that. I think it's just tough to get a, some sort of Doppler construct on there. Um, but I do Doppler them out while they're in-house for those first, you know, the overnight stay. And Dr. Ko, I know you, we kind of talked a little bit about how this is a pretty well-tolerated flat from a donor site morbidity perspective. Um, and then you haven't had too much issue with that. Do you have a specific kind of uh, post-op protocol in terms of uh, braces or splints or activity restrictions? Typically, no. So I will say one of the benefits, um, so for the scaphoid uh, and the lunate, I'm taking from the ipsilateral knee and they are small enough defects where they don't tend to have a ton of pain and I, there's a fairly low risk of fracture. Um, and then I do give them the option of using a, like a single crutch uh, if they want it on their opposite arm. Um, one of the, you know, the biggest MFC flaps I tend to take nowadays are for those lower extremity ankle reconstructions, either um, AVN at the ankle or the ankle fusions. So I preferentially take the MFC from the same leg. So ipsilateral flap with the understanding that the orthopedic surgeon is going to want them non-weight bearing for at least six weeks anyway. So even though I'm taking a big chunk of bone from their femur, they're not putting any weight on it, which is good. I don't use any, I, you know, I follow their direction in terms of orthopedics direction in terms of weight bearing, um, but I don't use any knee braces or anything for those cases because they're usually pretty good in terms of just keeping weight off of it. Um, I do have one case of just bad osteomyelitis of the wrist uh, that we wrote up a series with uh, Matt Iorio from University of Colorado in Denver, just using MFCs for really bad chronic osteomyelitis of the wrist. So like entire carpus had to be taken out. And that was the big, probably the biggest chunk of bone I've taken out was to reconstruct the whole wrist. Uh, and in that patient, that was early on in my practice too. Um, I kept her in a hinged knee brace for four weeks packed with allograft bone, hinge knee brace, slowly, you know, started her in strict extension and then slowly, you know, every week or two would like let her flex a little more. Um, if I were to do that case today, I actually probably would still do something similar just because I'd be so paranoid about the femur fracture. Uh, but typically now, you know, it's, I haven't had to do any sort of knee immobilization, uh, or any brace at all uh, in years. But again, I think it's cause I'm taking small pieces for the wrist and then the ones I'm using in the lower extremity, they're not walking or putting any weight on it anyway. So I just know that they're protected. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Crow, uh, for going through yeah, all those tips. We have one more uh, fun question for you. So for our listeners, Dr. Crow's a, a double dookie. So he was at Duke for undergrad, uh, for undergrad as well as for medical school. And I was wondering if you have any experiences or mentors at Duke that inspired you to go into plastic surgery. Uh, well, I am a double Dukey, but I'm much older uh, than Whitney, so we never cross paths. Um, so I mentioned it earlier before we started recording. Jeff Marcus was instrumental when I was a fourth year medical student uh, in terms of just helping guide me through the match process. He was the new, cool, young attending. Um, and look at him now, he's the chief. We'll have to share this with him, I like this. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, he loved these stories. But he, um, you know, you have to remember too, when I was a, when I was graduating from med school uh, in 2004, there were only 80 spots in the entire country. So there weren't that many integrated spots. And Northwestern was, you know, on my radar and Jeff Marcus was instrumental in terms of kind of guiding me there. Um, and I think coming to Northwestern's really shaped kind of who I am now in terms of doing TMR, a lot of brachial plexus and nerve transfer surgery in addition to extremity recon. But so the real answer to your question is um, I just knew I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon my whole life. That was what I was going to do. Lots of injuries. This is probably a very old injury too from when I was younger. Unclear when this scaphoid injury happened. But I had a lot of orthopedic type of injuries when I was younger. I used to shadow orthopedic surgeons. And in medical school, I was going to do a year in the lab, in the orthopedic lab. Uh, and my friend, who is now ironically a hospitalist, he was gung-ho in the plastic surgery. He convinced me to just spend a two-week uh, selective or whatever during my surgery rotation as a second year med student in plastic surgery, even though, you know, at the time I was like, oh, I'm just going to do orthopedics. You know, I don't, I have no interest in boob jobs and nose jobs. That was my idea of plastic surgery. And so he successfully con convinced me to just do two weeks on the plastics rotation during my surgery rotation. Very first day, uh, many people have heard this story. The chief of plastic surgery at the time was Scott Levin, who's now the chairman of orthopedics at University of Pennsylvania. You know, very fortuitous because he's double board in orthopedics and plastic surgery and did a hand fellowship. And probably not surprisingly or not uh, coincidentally, my practice today is, you know, there are a lot of similarities with what Dr. Levin does. Um, I'm just a very poor man's Scott Levin. But um, Literally in one day, you know, I saw him for a young patient, a veteran who had a brachial plexus injury, could not flex his elbow. I saw them do a bipolar latissimus functional muscle transfer. So transfer the latissimus to recreate the biceps. Coolest thing I had ever seen in my life. It blew my mind. And literally in one day, my whole life path changed. So, um, he was the biggest uh, influence on me when I was at Duke. Uh, the other faculty members at Duke were also were amazing at the time. Um, but Scott Levin, you know, continues to be a mentor today. Uh, and so I am where I am and who I am. You know, a lot of it is due to my experience at Duke. Well, that's awesome. That was a great answer. Thank you. Uh, I actually remember when I was rotating with you over at Northwestern, I remember you told me that story and I have to say thank you to you as well, because a lot of the things that I saw you do while I was there has driven some of my interest. Uh, so I've been kind of pursuing some of those things in terms of research and everything. So thank you for joining us and thank you for, you know, the inspiration. Yeah, thanks. Nick, you say that to everybody. So <laughs> <laughs> no, but thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. And I will say, our Northwestern residents really like the uh, Duke uh, podcast. They were telling me about it this past Wonderful. Year. Awesome. Keep up the great work. I'm glad you're expanding to the FLAP podcast arena. Uh, this is very exciting. Well, thank you again. I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today.
As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.